The Soundtrack Show will begin in five, four, three. John Williams approached the score for Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone in a very different way than his other films. Yet what he wrote fits the very definition of an epic, 19th century style orchestral masterpiece. This is The Soundtrack Show. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and in this episode, we'll be taking our first look at Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Or, (laughs) if you live anywhere but in the United States, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. In fact, I'm just going to refer to this movie as the Philosopher's Stone, as it more closely resembles the author's original intent. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, a movie from Warner Brothers from 2001, based on a wonderful novel by J.K. Rowling, directed by Chris Columbus, with a film score by John Williams. We're just going to take this from the very top and give some background on this movie and on this series. It all starts, of course, with J.K. Rowling. Her first Harry Potter novel came out in the UK in 1997, and then later in 1998 in the US as Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And the book was a smash hit. In 1999, she sold the Harry Potter film rights to Warner Brothers for one million pounds, or around two million U.S. dollars. And right away, pre-production started on the films for Harry Potter. Warner Brothers had a short list of directors, Terry Gilliam, Steven Spielberg, and then director Chris Columbus won the gig because he had a proven track record of working with kids. Consider Home Alone. Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Huge, huge hits. And in those films, he was really able to coax incredible performances out of not just Macaulay Culkin, the star, but the rest of the cast of children in those films. So Harry Potter presented a similar filming challenge. It was going to live and die by the performances of its core leads, all of which were children. Emma Watson as Hermione Granger, Rupert Grint as Ron Weasley, And of course, Daniel Radcliffe in the title role of Harry Potter. Well, and wouldn't you know it, director Chris Columbus had a great working relationship with John Williams. John Williams and Chris Columbus had done three movies together already, the aforementioned Home Alone and Home Alone 2, as well as a movie from 1998 called Stepmom, starring Susan Sarandon. John Williams was the first person that Columbus thought of. In fact, he was the only person that Columbus considered for the job. Meanwhile, John Williams was already familiar with the Harry Potter novels, and this leads us to an interesting story about John Williams and how he departed from his normal routine when it came to Harry Potter. It's actually a really charming story. John Williams, in general, has stated that he doesn't like to see a movie 
before it's in its rough cut and with a director. He doesn't want to read the script ahead of time. He doesn't want to visit the set. He doesn't want to see dailies. He wants to see it what we call tabula rosa, clean slate, as close as possible to what an audience will eventually see before he begins to work on the score. Well, he wasn't able to do that when it came to Harry Potter. This movie represents a break from his normal process. In November of 2001, he told USA Today, quote, In this case, because my kids were all reading the books, I read the first Harry Potter book, he says. I never even imagined I would be writing a score for the film. I didn't even know they were planning to make a film when I was reading it. He goes on to tell the London Times in 2001, quote, I have grandchildren who have read them, the Harry Potter books, and love them. I have children who read them and love them. In my family, there are three generations of American people enjoying rolling, end quote. So John Williams read the book before he did the movie. This is a departure from his normal process, as I said. And another interesting departure, and this is another great story about John Williams and one that makes the gestation of his score for Harry Potter unique. He was asked to score original music for a Harry Potter teaser trailer. In March of 2001, a large orchestra was assembled and John Williams recorded unique music that is specific to just a minute and a half to two minutes of film, the first trailer for a Harry Potter movie. So long before he actually started working on the score, he was asked to write trailer music. And it's important for us to take a listen and really get this music in our ear. The music that he wrote, months before he even started working on the score, is fully realized via a trailer. There's no such thing as magic. Dear Mr. Potter, you have been accepted to Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. Soon, you and your schoolmates will join us here, and your education in the magical arts shall begin. of important things to note about this trailer. And keep in mind, when movie trailers are cut together, they're done before most of the shots of the film, the visual effects shots, are even completed. You're taking the ones that are completed, the ones that are important to sell the concept of the movie, and those are the first shots that you're putting forward into the world. And indeed, this trailer therefore represents John Williams' first impression of the film and of the Harry Potter film franchise as a whole. Where am I going with this? 
you might be asking. Well, in the case of this trailer, one of the most striking shots is, according to Williams, quote, the scene in the living room with all of the letters, end quote. Dozens and dozens of owls have descended on the Dursleys' home on Privet Drive in order to get a copy of Harry Potter's acceptance letter into Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry to Harry himself. Williams went on to say about this scene, quote, I had never seen anything like that in a movie that I had done before, end quote. So it is this aspect of the trailer, this scene, that inspired him to write the theme music that you just heard. And what was the fan and industry reaction to the March 2001 trailer and its music? By all accounts, it was extremely positive. The creatives of the film loved it. Warner Brothers loved it. And John Williams was encouraged to take the trailer music that he wrote and have those themes be a part of the final score. Well, what is this theme music that we're talking about? This melody that ended up becoming the main Harry Potter theme. Interestingly enough, John Williams referred to it as, quote, Hedwig's theme, end quote. As you know, Hedwig is the name of the snowy owl that Harry Potter picks up in Diagon Alley later on in the film. Well, what is this theme? Let's break it down. It starts off melodically, very simply. Just a regular, natural minor. diatonic, meaning that it falls completely within the minor scale without any weird borrowed notes or modes from any other scale, just plain old minor, at least at first. But then it goes... Wait, what? What was that? Huh? Whoa, did I just hear that? It catches us off guard. Something isn't what it seems. And then, you know, it repeats... But then the theme whisks us away like wings flying through windy skies. Only to come back down to its secretive, mysterious resting place. This note right here is that unsettling tritone, the devil's tone, Diabolus in Musica, found in the magical Lydian, of course which we've discussed. But I bring it up because it's yet another example of unsettled mystery and a departure from the normal diatonic sound. Instead of... We get this. <laughs> and we don't get this. Just kidding. Sorry. Anyway, let's listen to this piece. There's the minor intro. Now there's the unsettling accidentals. Whoa. And now the soaring and coming back down. Now, here's a different expression of this main theme. More epic, bolder statements of the intervals, longer notes.
So now, I want to listen to the very top of this movie, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, as this will lead to a discussion that I hope you will find as fascinating as I do. Here we have two wizards, who call each other professors, met by a third motorcycle-riding giant wizard, dropping off a baby in a suburban English neighborhood, with no explanation of what's really going on. But we are intrigued, and perhaps due in no small part to the music. Something magical is afoot. There you go. And listen, we already have this main theme playing. Albus, do you really think it's safe? Leaving him with these people. I've watched them all day. They're the worst sort of muggles imaginable. They really are. The only family he has. This boy will be famous. There won't be a child in our world who doesn't know his name. Exactly. He's far better off growing up away from all of that. Until he is ready. It's not really goodbye after all. There it is again, but in a new key. Good luck, Harry Potter. And now we get a huge statement of it in the main title as a giant transition. that there's no music playing at the Dursleys. The magic of that first scene is over. The lighting is bleak and harsh, certainly not magical. You can learn a lot about the composer's and filmmaker's intentions by where they place music in a film. Wake up, cousin! We're going to the zoo! But you can learn an equal amount by where they don't put music. <laughs> Chris Columbus and John Williams are basically telling us, this place sucks. So all of this music that we heard in the opening, again and again, is a riff on Hedwig's theme. Hedwig's theme. So, the question I have for us in this episode is why is this called Hedwig's theme and not Harry Potter's theme? That's an interesting question, especially when you consider William's other work. We discussed Star Wars in the past, and when you look at the main title music for Star Wars, as we know, it originally started out as, according to the original liner notes that Williams penned himself on the double vinyl soundtrack release in 1977, the main title started out as a theme for the hero Luke Skywalker. And hey, Superman has his theme. The Raiders' March is Indy's theme. Rey has her theme. So why isn't this... Harry's theme. Is Hedwig's theme a misnomer? Eh, perhaps. If we take this very literally, then yeah, it's hard to say that it's purely Hedwig's theme, that specific owl. It's a theme for Harry Potter movies, which is true. But what's the initial creative intent that was going on here in calling it Hedwig's theme? Well, we have to go back to William's first impression of the book and of that first trailer, and by expressing a musical theme that's really for the owls in general, he's really expressing a theme of the messenger. 
as owls are literal messengers in this magical world. The messenger to Harry. And the message? The existence of a magical world that Harry has never known about. And therefore, of course, by extension, our discovery, the audience or reader's discovery of a magical world that lives right below our unsuspecting muggle noses. And even further, perhaps, Williams felt the real weight, the real significance of this message instinctively. Because a master storyteller like John Williams understands that for Harry, this message that's coming to him from the owls is much more than just a call to action or a discovery of a new magical world, as if that weren't enough. As an orphan, when he receives these letters from the owls, Harry Potter is finally being called home. And now for a brief intermission. We return now to the soundtrack show. Just like Cinderella, Harry Potter, while living under the care of the Dursleys, is in a very hostile environment. He's not wanted. He's told he's worthless, made to feel less than, made to feel like a second-class citizen or family member. But the arrival of hundreds of owls at his doorstep is the arrival of a magical world one that Harry belongs in. And it's this expression of a magical world that John Williams captures and crystallizes into the main theme for all of Harry Potter. The music of Hedwig's theme is the world of Hogwarts, of wizards and witches. The music of Hedwig's theme is a metaphor for the existence of magic itself. Mysterious, beyond scientific or rational understanding, Sleight of hand. Mostly unseen to the average muggle. Beautiful and alluring, but also thrilling and kind of scary, as the world of magic can be dangerous. Williams expresses all of this in his main theme for the Harry Potter films, which he calls Hedwig's theme. But perhaps there is another reason why this direction was chosen rather than creating a heroic theme for Harry Potter. Like many characters in mythology, Harry is an orphan. Literature throughout time has had our main protagonists be orphans. Luke Skywalker, Rey, Oliver Twist, even Jack Dawson from Titanic, uh, The Lion King. The list goes on and on. But there's more to Harry's story, I think, than there are to other orphan archetypes when we meet them. And that is this. When we meet Harry Potter, and during the course of this first movie, he's only 11 years old. At such a young age, he is swept up in this world around him, and his future is still uncertain. A lot has been written about orphan archetypes, and you can read about it online, but I did find one quote that I found that I really liked. Quote, The orphan archetype treads a thin but tragic line between good and evil. The orphan's depth of suffering means the elation of achievement soars even greater, and it is for this reason that many an orphan character has littered the pages and screens of children's literature and film. On one side of the chasm lies distrust and betrayal in the orphan, and in the other, detachment from the need to be accepted by others, standing out from the crowd, and even, if all goes to plan, spiritual enlightenment, end quote. You see, Harry's future isn't set. He has a difficult road ahead of him, and we know that his relationships with other students, his friends, his, his house, Gryffindor, his choosing not to be in Slytherin, for example, are all important steps on Harry's journey. Indeed, the world of Harry Potter is overwhelming to its main protagonist, 
just as it is to us. The world of magic is everything in these films. Perhaps this is also why Williams named the main theme of these movies after an owl, a messenger, rather than our young protagonist himself. The music is a description of Harry's true home, and it tunefully describes its wonder and magic to us in a way that sets it far apart from the dreary world of Muggles or the Dursleys, a world of no magic and no sense of belonging. So, back to the music. How else does Williams represent magic in his music? First of all, let's talk about the instrumentation of Hedwig's theme. The theme is played on a celeste or a celeste, which means celestial or heavenly. It's like, it sounds like these chimey bells ringing. It's beautiful. And an actual celeste is a keyboard instrument, like a piano, which has hammers that strike bells rather than strings, like a piano hammer would strike. Let's listen. Also, it's in a beat of three, three-quarter time. Actually, it's in three-eight time because it's very fast, but it's in the beat of three. If you remember, common time is usually in four, four-four time. Dance music is in four, one, two, and three, and four. But something like a waltz, for example, is in three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And in the case of Hedwig's theme, it's much faster. One, two, three, one, two, three, bum, ba dum, bum, 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 two, three, one, two, three, one, two, and three, and one, two, three, one, two, three. Well, three is oftentimes associated with magic, with fairy tales. The rule of three, when story points pop up three times, you've been granted three wishes. You count to three before something important or magical happens. Three is often associated with magic, or even with evil. Perhaps it's no coincidence then that the music of Harry Potter is also written in three. Let's take a listen to a video of John Williams and the Boston Pops, where he can tell us more himself about Hedwig's theme. The first little piece in this suite is called Hedwig's Flight, and people who know the book and the film will know that Hedwig is that wonderfully beautiful white owl. So he, Hedwig needed some music that was gossamer, light, and so I thought, Celeste, which is the little keyboard instrument, it's like a mini piano, and each note on it, you play it like a piano, but each note is kind of like a bell. It has a pedal like a piano, so if you play five quick notes and put the pedal on, you get this beautiful little blur. It's kind of like a, a bird feather that just would float. switch to a new section, which is now in 4-4 time, or common time.
Listen to him play that celeste. It's those lines are fast and soaring. Unbelievable. By the way, don't ever let anyone tell you that musicians think that John Williams' music is simple to play compared to other music. This is this theme has always been proof to me. I remember I was on a panel once and someone said, oh yeah, John Williams is like a cinch to play for musicians. And I was like, oh, I disagree. Uh, and this is a wonderful case in point. Um, this music is exceptionally difficult for a keyboardist to play. Anyway, let's chat about that B section that we also heard. It switched to 4-4 or common time there. And you know, in going through and watching and listening to this movie, it's as if John Williams wrote a suite of music beforehand, a suite of preconceived themes or passages, so that he could arm himself to then use those passages in certain parts of the movie. For example, this B section we hear in magical parts of the movie, such as when Harry and the Dursleys are at the London Zoo and the python escapes thanks unknowingly to Harry's magical ability. You'll hear it again in the Quidditch match much later in the film. The Quaffle is released, and the game begins! Between the A section that we heard repeatedly at the top of the film, and then this sort of B section, we hear Hedwig's theme more than 20 times in this movie. It's an extremely important piece of music in not only this film, but throughout the entire Harry Potter film franchise. So, before we move on to other pieces of music in the film, I want to talk in general about the musical influences to the music of Harry Potter. To recap what we've discussed on previous episodes of the Soundtrack Show, the sound of classic Hollywood film scores, meaning the sound of Korngold, Steiner, Alfred Newman, Franz Waxman, and others, really comes from what's called the Romantic Era of Orchestral Music, from about the early 19th century to the beginning of the 20th century in orchestral music. This is music that is post-Mozart, post-Bach, post-Haydn, even post-Beethoven for the most part. It's the music of Brahms, of Berlioz, of Tchaikovsky, of Smetna, of Mendelssohn, and others. These are the sounds that classic Hollywood relied upon for its musical storytelling. Well, John Williams is really credited, as we've discussed, with bringing these back into fashion starting in the late 1970s, specifically with Jaws, Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., The Extraterrestrial, and others. However, I would argue that his score for Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone just nails the very definition of the romantic era of orchestral music. 
Professor, historian, and composer Dr. Robert Greenberg describes the Romantic era of music as having a few basic characteristics that set it apart from other eras in orchestral music. And as you listen to these, keep Harry Potter in mind. Number one, romantic music goes for maximum emotional impact. If the music is trying to convey love, it is the, the chest-heaving, heart-pounding, tortured love of, say, Romeo and Juliet by Tchaikovsky, for example. If it's grief, joy, etc., the emotions go to 11. Number two, it's in a popular style with memorable melodies. It's accessible. It's hummable. We certainly will discuss more than a fair share of simple yet totally memorable tunes in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Number three, folk music traditions. There are several areas in this score where Williams does some world-building with in-world folksy music, and folk music is a really important part of the definition of the romantic period of orchestral music. And lastly, number four, and this is really where Harry Potter just hits the nail right on the head, the romantic era of music can be described as having a very strong interest in the supernatural in magic, in witchcraft, in the spiritual realm, in forces that are bigger than this world, and even a fascination with the macabre. In this way, the setting of Harry Potter is perfect for the romantic orchestral style. It's perfect for John Williams. No wonder Chris Columbus didn't consider any other composer but Williams for this. He is perfect for Harry Potter, especially these early films. I want to just play some music from the Romantic era of orchestral music just to give us an idea of how Harry Potter is so influenced by this time period of composition. This first piece is called Dance Macabre by Camille Sanson. This could come straight out of a temp score for any Harry Potter film. Listen to the tritones in the fiddle. And of course, this is also in a fast three-quarter time. Interesting. If I was an editor, I would have tempted this into a rough cut easily had I been working on this first film. Here's another piece. Let's take a listen to its instrumentation. This is The Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairies from Tchaikovsky's ballet, The Nutcracker. Listen to that celeste. These are certainly familiar textures when we consider the final Harry Potter score. And lastly, I want to play The Witch's Sabbath from Hector Berlioz's Symphony Fantastique.
the DSRA craze in full swing. This is a perfect example of a 19th century audience's obsession with the macabre. Oh, and for good measure, here's one more, straight from my episode about Universal Monster Movies, Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake. to these textures and themes just scream Harry Potter. Gothic castles and adventure, witches and wizards on broomsticks. More than a little mischief to manage. Is it any wonder, then, that John Williams processed all of this and produced the music that we identify with the Harry Potter films? Is it any wonder why Hedwig's theme sounds the way it does? How it fills us with wonder, dread, and an insatiable excitement all at the same time. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. Hedwig's theme is far from being the only world-building music that John Williams gives us for Harry Potter. I give you perhaps my favorite piece of music in all of this first film, a suite that is aptly called Harry's Wondrous World. Starts off with Hedwig's theme, but a new cradling theme emerges and carries us with comfort. And listen to how the music delights in the beauty of this magical world. Now it repeats, but goes off on different journeys. Yes, there's also still a bit of the unknown. What a great piece. First of all, let's talk about how this piece is also in three. Ba-dee-da-dee-dum, ba-dee-dum, bam, bam, bam. One, two, three, one, two, three, one. Like a cozy waltz or even a lullaby. Bum, 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 bum. This represents Harry's love of this new world. This represents his new home. complete delight. And a bit of an antidote to the mystery and macabre nature of Hedwig's theme. While some mystery is maintained, especially when you get to this part. This piece is a reflection on being in the world of magic. A reflection on its beauty. A chance to just enjoy being there. And there's so much more music to discuss. But before we wrap it up for this episode, we need to ask just one simple question. If Hedwig's theme isn't necessarily a theme for the character Harry Potter, does Harry Potter have his own theme at all? I believe that the answer is yes. Harry Potter does have his own theme, 
and it emerges throughout the Philosopher's Stone in moments that deal with his family, be it a longing for his parents, a vision of his parents, etc., a theme for Harry rings through. Let's take a listen to just a couple examples of this theme in the movie. Boys' dormitories upstairs and down to your left, girls the same on your right. You'll find all your belongings have already been brought up. This first one is when Harry first arrives at Gryffindor House, and now everyone's asleep. But as the camera pans up, it's revealed to us that Harry is wide awake. And as he stares out the window, we get this lovely theme right here. Notice it's also in three-quarter time. It's almost like Harry Potter was rescued for a second time by coming to Hogwarts. Then you get this beautiful shot of Hogwarts in the morning, almost like Harry was up all night, like he couldn't believe he was there at such a wonderful place. He couldn't sleep because he was so excited. And of course, he's then late to Professor McGonagall's class as a result. So while I mentioned that theme is very simple, it's strongly related to Harry's wondrous world. They both feel like a lullaby or a waltz. They could almost be different parts of the same piece of music. They complement each other. They are related. I'm going to play you one last example, but don't worry, there are many more that we'll get to in the next episode. This is a very subtle and different example of how Harry's theme... is used in an action sequence, or at least it's hinted at in an action sequence, during the Quidditch match. Right when Harry's about to get the golden snitch, you hear the low brass start to play his theme. Bom, 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 bom. But it doesn't resolve. It just keeps modulating upward to build excitement. Will Harry succeed? And then when he does succeed, you hear for the first time in the movie, Harry's wondrous world. Williams held this theme back until this moment. Let's take a listen. Listen for it right here. Theme tries to emerge but isn't quite there. Did Harry succeed? Did he catch the snitch? I think he's gonna be sick. Looks like he's gonna be sick. He's got the snitch. Harry Potter receives 150 points for catching the snitch. But no, he caught the snitch, and we get first a quick theme for Quidditch, also in three-quarter time. And now, Harry's Wondrous World theme in three, two, one. (laughs) 
Now, what's really interesting about Williams playing, or at least hinting at Harry's theme, or Harry's family theme, what's really interesting about him playing Harry's family theme here in the Quidditch match, right as Harry is about to get the snitch, is that Harry's father was also a seeker on the Gryffindor Quidditch team decades before, back in 1972. So there is a family connection there. And for Harry's wondrous world to play when Harry is successful is a signal to us, the audience, that Harry's wondrous world of Hogwarts and his friends and teachers has all adopted him into their family. This is his new home, a modified version. A modified version both musically and in the story of Harry's original family nucleus. Now on our next episode, we'll discuss even more of Harry's family theme and where it's used. And we'll also discuss how these films and their music are really a metaphor for adolescent struggles by looking at how it handles the school year, holiday breaks, different locations, and of course, we'll talk about the music for He Who Must Not Be Named. All of this and more as we continue to look at Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone here on The Soundtrack Show. Thank you.